Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. I'm Tina Desiree Burke, and this week we're traveling to Fresno, California to CD22, where we are talking with Dari Rosani, who is running against Devin Nunes. Welcome, Dari. Hi, thanks for having me. 100%. So you're in Fresno area, which is the mid part of the state. It's been a Republican stronghold for a long time. Devin Nunes is the current uh, rep there. I wanted to talk about him for a second because he is, as far as I'm concerned, the apex of right-wing snowflake. He is suing uh, a couple of parody accounts on Twitter. One of them that uh, makes me laugh is the Devin Nunes, Devin Nunes' cow. And the kind of tweets that this, I'm going to read a couple of these tweets so the audience has an idea of what we're talking about. Nunes is a treasonous cowpoke. Nunes is, uh, or Devin's boots are full of manure. He's utterly, spelled U-D-D-E-R-L-Y, worthless, and it's pasture time to move him to prison. I mean, obviously this is a joke, right? So the fact that this guy has gotten so upset about these accounts that he's actually suing both Twitter and the accounts is beyond the pale to me. What what uh, What are your thoughts on this? Does this help your election? Well, I mean, this guy's Breitbart personified is what I like to call him, because there is uh, there's a lot of people that I know that know him from Tulare um, that actually I, I mean, he believes a lot of these conspiracy theories about the, the deep state and, and et cetera. Um, and, you know, the funny part about the lawsuit with Devin's cow is it had under a thousand followers until the lawsuit. <laughs> and so after the lawsuit, it jumped up to I think it's now like six hundred, seven hundred thousand followers. Right. Um, and personally, I like. Alt Mom, the other Twitter account that uh, he is suing, because it, it's quite a bit funnier, um, but uh, and they are a bit more progressive, um, okay. and so uh, I, I would suggest following following both because it, it, they do have some good content. But ultimately, I mean, we've seen this guy doesn't really get anything done in Congress. He protects the president. That's really the only reason he's there, um, and he hasn't really done anything for the district. I mean, no. we have uh, doubled the national average of poverty. Um, we have one of the highest food insecurity rates in the entire nation. And considering we provide uh, the entire nation with fruits and vegetables, I think that uh, there's some pretty common sense legislation that we can uh, start filling some of those gaps. Yeah, you know, and he's also been photographed with white nationalists, with yep. Proud Boys. Uh, you know, and a big chunk of your district is is African-American and Lat- Latino. So it seems to me that it would be difficult for him to uh, win a reelection at this point. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. So one of the Proud Boys uh, that you mentioned, uh, I believe his name's Ben Bernanke or something yes, along those correct. lines. Yeah. yeah um, so he's that that's a, he's a has a huge YouTube following. I think he was on Alex Jones the other day. Um, and so, you know, this is like I said, Breitbart personified. Yeah. Um, and the problem is, you know, we up until Jance's election, I don't think anyone had actually ever raised over a hundred thousand dollars. And so um, it's not so much that it's such a conservative district. It's that we haven't been putting in the work as, as you know, a different party to actually start building the foundation that we need in order to start flipping this district and actually get the representation that we need. Um, we've That's started a good to point. see, it, yeah, you know, we've started to see it at the local level. Um, we had uh, the news, for lack of a better term, called it the brown wave, uh, but we were able to get three uh, uh, Latin American, uh, Latino American. Um, individuals elected to the city council. Um, and so it, it's starting to happen. And then we're actually seeing it in CD 16 uh, with Esmeralda Soria uh, uh, primarying Jim Costa. 
Right. You know, and I think you make a valid point about not giving an alternative. In the state of California, it's almost like one party rule, but it's neoliberal rule. So yeah. and I think what distinguishes California Democrats um, from California Republicans is that the divide isn't this. It's this that the neoists yes. sort of buy into the same policies. And I don't think that the uh, the Republicans in the state are more old school Ronald Reagan type Republicans, and they don't like uh, Trump. They don't like the white nationalists. They think it dirties the party. I don't necessarily agree with a Republican platform, even in that regard. I think Ronald Reagan has had policies that were very devastating for the state when he was governor. But having said that, there is definitely a distinguishable difference between these two categories of Republicans. So I can't imagine that Nunes playing into all of this Trump stuff, as he has been uh, week after week after week, is going to benefit his reelection campaign in any capacity. So especially in our district, it's a little it, it's half and half. Right. Because uh, an area like Tulare County still has an active KKK chapter. And so wow, there, really. Yeah. That's so scary. there is there is a bit of not a bit. I mean, there is some blatant racism here. I mean, that that's yeah. uh, that that is something that does happen. Um, but one of the things that I always bring up is I think that the biggest hindrance in flipping a lot of the Central Valley seats um, is actually the California, uh, the state party Democrats, yeah. um, especially okay. with the, the, the constant raising of taxes, which disproportionately impacts uh, areas like the Central Valley, um, because we actually don't see any of the benefits. We don't see the roads getting better. We don't see any of this stuff. But yet our, our taxes right. continue to go up. And when you you know, one of the statistics I like to throw out is if you take the Central Valley out of California, the Central Valley is actually the third poorest state in the United States. Absolutely. And, and so with that kind of economic and socio socioeconomic disparity, um, it's very difficult to have these conversations without, uh, you know, bringing taxes into it. No, and I think that's a really valid point. Let's talk about that for a second, because it isn't the taxes per se that are a problem. It's the way that they're taxing that's a problem, in my opinion. The the brunt of it, the burden, is following following under the middle and uh, poorer classes and not the wealthy in the state, because the neoliberals have protected themselves. If they went about taxing in a different way, actually going after the top percent of income earners and the corporations, I think it would be a very different conversation. I think, for example, that splitting the roles in Prop 13 makes sense for this reason. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have companies like Chevron, et cetera, et cetera, large multinational corporations that have not been paying their fair share of taxes in the state for a long time. They were also protected under Prop 13. It's not about residential property, right? No. So I think um, I think reform in those areas would change quite a bit and it would benefit um, the poor classes, the working classes and the middle classes that are right now absolutely bearing the brunt of the way the system's been set up. And it's at the expense of guys like, you know, the Resnicks that own uh, Palm Wonderful yep. is one of the things I'm thinking about. They had all of those pomegranate orchards and the almond farms. They were um, working with, they set up a private corporation that was sort of secretly working with the government on water rights because they were basically taking the water away from it. all the local farmers and the smaller farmers to fund their corporate um their corporate establishment farm there, their factory farm. And it was to grow plants that are really not conducive because they, they need a lot of water to grow in the state of California when we're facing a drought. So I think when that whole scandal came out, it was very eye-opening for a lot of folks. Some people gave a tip to public citizen, uh, 
Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit organization about what appeared to be some shady water deals going on in, in Central Valley of California. You know, the first thing I did was I looked up the current water bank online. You know, Google was in its early years, more or less 2003. Well, it turns out it's largely controlled by something called Roll International. And when I called their headquarters and asked to speak to a public relations person, they said they didn't have one. And I said, well, to whom should I address any research questions? They said, we don't give information to the public. We suggest you don't research us and hung up. So I drive down to Bakersfield and then follow the directions out to the address. And I'm a little bit confused because the sign outside says Paramount Farming Company, not Kern Water Bank Authority walk in the front door and ask a receptionist, um, is the Kern Water Bank, do you know where that office is? Oh yeah, they're just down the hall. They said, it's like, okay. The Kern Water Bank is a supposedly public entity and the members are a number of different water districts, water agencies, water storage districts, and also a private company called Westside Mutual Water Company, LLC. And I remember asking, who are they? Well, they're landowners. Well. Who, what land they own, well, they represent their own land. They didn't want to mention the name Paramount Farming, which was notable considering where we were sitting, which was inside Paramount's office building. It seemed as if this is a case of extremely valuable public property, um, an essential element of the state public water system, which had essentially been given to a very wealthy private uh, company but really just one landowner, one corporate farmer. What do you mean the Resnex gave $250 million to fight climate change? Uh, they're, they're the good guys, right? <laughs> no, they're not the good guys too. And here's the other thing. That's like what I call uh, philanthropic capitalism. Yep. These guys like throw out these big, these supposedly big numbers about what they've given. But when you look at how much billions that they have, it's like a joke, right? It's like, it's yeah. like when the banks, the Wall Street banks pay a fine and it sounds like this insanely large number, but it's really not when you look at how yep. much profiteering they've engaged in. Yep. So um, I think it's a really relevant converse, uh, conversation, and especially for your area. So let's talk about, in Fresno, let's talk about that because you have a lot of agriculture there, which uh, yep. pesticides, runoff. So there's uh, diesel from the tractors, what have you. So there's a big pollution problem in yep. Fresno. And I think it's probably one of, there's an, a section there that's probably one of the most polluted areas in the country, not just the state of California. And I think it's related to racism because you have like a meat rendering uh, plant, you have dumps, you have uh, a chicken plant, like all of these things are highly, highly polluting and highly toxic. And they're all placed in areas that have predominantly African-American or Hispanic uh, folks living there. So I think there, that there's an integral relationship between fighting climate change and how it's kind of undergirded racist policies uh, in the state and in the country. What are your thoughts on that and how do we fix it? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. So there, there's a couple things. And so I wanna start with what you talked about on farming, okay. um, because one of the one of the main points of, of our campaign is to start saving the family farms. Um, because really the way that these more corporate farms are, are farming is not sustainable. They, they use standardized cropping methods um, and really they're not living in the district. And so when the right. owners of these do not live in the district, they don't care what pesticides right. they use and they treat it as an investment. We only have 20 to 30 years of topsoil left. Um, and so, you know, if we continue with this method, you know, they're going to 
take their money and run in 20 to 30 years when it's not profitable anymore. Um, one of the people, and actually it was uh, the farmer that was sued by Devin Nunes, Paul Buxman, yeah. um, who is, who is uh, he runs Clean California, which is a, a basically a way to save the family farm and really uh, highlights the benefits of family farming, which is crop rotation, mm-hmm. um, you know, people actually living on the land. So they're going to be much more conscious of uh, what chemicals are being used and, and things along those lines. And, and not to mention that we have seen, and this isn't just in our district, but um, throughout the United States, farmers have actually had the largest uptick in suicide rate of any uh, of any uh, profession hmm. over the last 10 years. And this is largely due, uh, in my opinion, to predatory loan practices from uh, companies like Tyson and Purdue, right. um, because they basically set the price and, and set the quantity. And if you can't meet that, they take your farm. And for a lot of these family farmers, this is something that's been passed down four or five generations. And so when you take that, you've now taken their livelihood. But to your point on environmental justice, uh, one of the one of the stars in in environmental justice here in the Central Valley is Keyshawn White, uh, who actually runs the the local Sunrise Movement uh, program. And uh, what he did was set up air monitors uh, to actually give statistical data to show the environmental racism. Um, and so in West Fresno, there was actually a 25 year uh, decrease in life expectancy, which is exactly where all of our factories are. And that was the actual yeah. uh, study and statistic that Tom Steyer used uh, a couple debates ago. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the guy is doing leaps and bounds for this, this area. Um, we, we actually uh, um, donated a little bit to his campaign. Well, I guess me personally donated uh, a little bit to his uh, nonprofit in order to get some more air monitors because um, especially having worked in in consulting, I'm a data guy, and so actually being able to prove this stuff is the number one step uh, in getting people to understand that it's not you know just everyone screaming this is racist. It's this is factually racist. Oh, it's totally racist, and I think the zip code is nine three seven zero six. Isn't there like yeah. a yeah? So it's it's a very it's a very sad state of affairs, and I think that folks need to realize that this, in my opinion, climate change. It, it has tentacles that go into so many other issues related oh, yeah. to not just uh, environmental justice, but racism. You can go down the line. If we don't do something about this issue, I don't think anything else matters. This is, to me, the existential threat that we're actually facing. Well, let's talk about immigration, right? Yeah. I mean, we it's saw related. with yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we saw with the uh, with the storm in the Bahamas, and then the Trump administration refusal to take in the refugees. I mean, climate refugees are not going to go away. They no, it's going to get worse. Exactly. I agree. It's going to get worse. Um, Um, Famines, food scarcity. I mean, so it it literally is an existential threat. So we need to do something about it. Um, You're a first-generation American, I know. Um, Your dad started a business when he first moved here that I believe you have also worked in. Yeah, so so my dad. Yeah, so I want to know, as a small business owner, I think you get the raw end of the stick versus a multinational corporation (laughs) when it comes to not only taxation, but a whole host Mm -hmm. of other laws, employment laws, et cetera. What are some of the market differences between like a small business and a multinational corporation? And what are um, some policies that we can sort of look at to fix fix that discrepancy? Because I think small businesses are the backbone of yes. the country, not multinational corporations that are just extracting wealth and moving the money offshore. Yep. Well, I have I have the unique experience of uh, owning a small business and also having worked at Price Waterhouse Cooper, uh, oh. and so. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay. And, and so uh, I was a financial statement auditor and also a management consultant. And um, that is actually what gave me the full understanding of just how this is working. And so unfortunately, there isn't just one policy. I do believe mm-hmm. uh, one of the first things that we have to do is uh, there's a CEO to labor uh, tax bill that is coming to, to increase um, the tax penalty for CEOs that make 200, 300 times their, their oh, lowest uh, wage earner. Um, so that's the first thing that has to happen, because what we've seen is so many of these corporations garner so much market share. If you want to talk about the grocery industry, there's four companies that own about 90 percent of market share when it comes to grocers. The problem is when you own that much that much market capital, you get to then dictate prices, you dictate yeah. the entire market. And so for the little guy to then try and and try and make their money, frankly, you can't you, you just can't compete. No, and the so DOJ the- has not been enforcing antitrust law. No, and really, the last instance that we saw was uh, their their uh, uh, vetoing of the Broadcom Qualcomm deal, uh, and the only reason that that happened was because Broadcom is a Chinese company. It had nothing to do with actually protecting um, protecting market share. It, it was purely to to keep China out. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you know, consumers I, I, were not figured into that equation. That's for sure. No, not at all. I, I mean, even if you want, you know, to make it more relatable, 90 percent of the beer that Americans drink are dictated by two companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we have this massive disparity. But ultimately, because especially in an area like Fresno, where the majority of our jobs are retail or, you know, service, um, until we actually get that money recirculating to the mm-hmm. to the, the labor pool. Um, there's no way for small businesses to actually be able to raise their price. And so that's why we have to be careful with something like just saying a $15 minimum wage, which by the way, is already behind on what yeah, we really should be paying. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, if we were to just enact a flat $15 minimum wage, it does disproportionately impact small businesses. The way that we have to do it though, is tier it so that we can actually take the money from these multinational corporations, funnel it back into the local economy. So then the small businesses can start raising their prices and people need to be able to actually be willing to pay the incremental cost to realize that the money that is staying within their their local economy is better for them because i you know for me take take me for example i mean my money goes into our like our local groups our our democrat groups our our nonprofits, our homeless shelters um but you know when you have a billion dollars in san jose well that's not going to be that that doesn't help anyone no. So, you know, it, it's uh, unfortunately and and that's really where Trump wins. I mean, yeah. he uh, he gets to have the slogan, make America great. And when you're talking about deep rooted, deep rooted systemic issues, there is no you know tagline to, to explain that. No, there isn't. You know, I've often said that the left hasn't uh, supplied a left exit to the income inequality in the country. And that's part of the problem. And the left needs to do that. I think Bernie Sanders is a candidate that can do that. And I think that's why he's been able to take such a lion's share of the independent vote in the country, because he's the only one that's really interested in addressing, truly addressing income inequality. And it's a it's a problem. You know, over 80 percent of the new wealth created the last couple of years went to the one percent. It's untenable. It's immoral. It needs to be dealt with. And and really, Trump is just a symptom of that underlying rot and especially in the state of California, we've had a Democratic Party, as you mentioned, the California Demo- Democratic Party earlier, that has just given sway to corporations, to real estate developers. They are so bought and paid for at this point, and it's one-party rule in the state that there's been little um, little will by our elected officials to actually look at these problems and fix them. Yep. Um, so 
I think um, another part of that is the homeless situations. You know, we enacted a law, Costa Hawkins, that I'm sure you're familiar with, that uh, prevented local municipalities from doing rent control laws. Um, and this this happened in the 90s. So this has been going on for a while now. Now you've got Newsom coming in. He's passing some legislation to alleviate that, to allow some rent control laws to come in. But at this point, the damage is, is done. The rents are so high compared to what folks' wages are that this isn't going to be enough. It's a Band-Aid. Um, what are your thoughts on this? And do you think um, on a federal level, do you think a, an organization like HUD could have per- perhaps a remedy for sort of doing something about the situation? Because where we're at now is very precarious. Something about some, somewhere between 22 and 27% of homeless folks are actually fully employed in the state. Yep. Wrap your head around that for a second. Yeah, I, I mean, so first thing, yeah, HUD can expand voucher programs, things along those lines. But I, I do think that a lot of this uh, drills down into American consumerism. If you look at areas like San Jose or, or Oakland, uh, I believe the number is there's four unoccupied homes per homeless person. And so yeah. the, the, ho- the housing is there. And that's one of the things that you're that, right. You're not wrong. Uh, yeah, that, that's one of the things that I, I wish we would start talking about is the amount of individualism that we uh, you know, started to have in this country and not really started. I mean, it, it's really rooted in the American way yeah. um, is being it's able to have your white picket. Yes, it, it, exactly. And so um, it, there's a lot of things legislatively that can be done, but I, I truly don't believe anything that we've done in this country is fully legislatively, uh, you know, fixable. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of this That's is fair. a societal, I, I think a lot of this is a societal change and actually mm-hmm. starting to look at individuals as human beings, as opposed yeah. to measures of economic success. Um, and so that's one of the things that, I mean, here in, in Fresno, uh, we see it all the time and it's only getting worse, um, especially with this is one of the last areas that can be gentrified in California. Yeah. And so, you know, we've we've seen housing go up. We've seen our rent prices go up. Oh, when I was working at uh, PwC and still uh, commuting back and forth to, to Fresno, I lived in an RV outside of the outside of the PwC office. Yeah. Um you know, you, the starting pay there was sixty thousand dollars, but the the poverty line in uh, an area like the Bay Area is a hundred thousand. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, when people tell you to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, get a college degree. I mean, hell, accounting is a five year college degree. Yeah. I did that. You're still working for for uh, paycheck to paycheck. One hundred percent. No, and you not only working paycheck to paycheck, you have debt on top of it. It's yes. un it's untenable at this point. It's crazy that people don't understand how this this you know and it's like this serves this doesn't even serve the one percent because eventually when you run out of expendable income right their their entire capitalist system is built upon consumption so when when two-thirds of your economy is driven by consumption the minute that goes away it not only affects the folks that cannot consume anymore it eventually affects the one percent too because they have nobody left to sell widgets to i don't understand why they don't see that they've reached that phase in our economy. Um, because you can just keep putting everything on credit, you know? Well, I but mean- not anymore. That's a good point. In fact, that was one of one of Marx's point is, you know, when we get to that stage, how do we get there? And I always said that the two things that would be self-fulfilling on, on what Marx's criticism of capitalism was, was credit, what you just brought up, yeah. because they developed credit and that handed more money into the consumer's pockets so that they didn't have to worry about raising the, raising their wages, right? So, because Marx talks about, well, they'll do anything to not raise the wages. Credit allowed them to do that. We don't have to raise the wages. We have credit. Then globalization came in, and that was the other thing that happened. But both of those things have run their course. There's no more runway left in either of these 
these uh, areas. So that's where we're at. And I think, uh, you know, when you have 25% of your employed, fully employed population living in their cars it, or, 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 or living in SROs or wherever they are, they're considered homeless. It's a problem. Yeah. It's a very unhealthy economy. Well, I mean, and, and one of the one of the homeless demographics people want to talk about is pe- the students that sleep in their cars. Oh, I my mean, God. Yeah. We're, oh my we're God, not taking yeah. we're not taking care of, no. you know, societally. Education is the most important thing we can do. And that's from pre-K all the way all the way to higher education and vocational schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we have people with this entire narrative of pull yourself by the bootstraps, get your college degree. Um, you know, it, it's this narrative that's extremely dangerous because yeah. then you start to feel that you failed when that job isn't there, when that, when, you know, and, and it's self-doubt and, you know, yeah. we've already seen the, the mental health care crisis that's, that's, uh, going on in this nation. And the fact that we have a blatant disregard for the parody act, right. um, you know, I, it's the it's reason every I, aspect of society at this point. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we're just at a point right now, and really, that's the reason that I decided to run in the first place. Is frankly, we don't have time. I would have loved to have got, gotten into politics later in life, um, mm-hmm. but after seeing the DNC's refusal to hold a climate debate, after seeing right. children continue to be separated, right. we are not treating these these problems as the, in your words, existential threat that they truly are. Right. Um, and if we don't have people that are willing to fight and and call things out as they are, we're doomed. And so, you know, is, is this a tough task? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's not so much is something winnable It's why are you running? And I believe mm-hmm. that the, the answer is to make everyone's life better. Hell, I could have gone my whole life without doing this, but unfortunately people, we just don't have enough people in the government that actually care. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. You know, and you bring up education that that's another area of privatization that has just changed dramatically in the last three to four decades. I was able to get a master's degree without ever taking a student loan. That's that's how and I'm Generation X. That's how quickly tuition has been raised due to privatization or, or lack of funding from the state. So. We're at a very bad spot. And of course, we can relate that back to Prop 13. I'm, and I'm yeah. going to ask Californians that are listening to this podcast to please consider voting yes on that proposition. We need to refinance our education system. And the way we do it is having split roles. I'm so, going to I'm going to not ask for them to consider. I'm going to ask them to vote yes. Ah, OK, <laughs> <laughs> I demand it. Yeah, honestly, it's to our benefit because it's is we cannot continue under this route. Meanwhile, you literally have corporations paying zero dollars. Like it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Um, let's talk about healthcare for a moment. Um, one of the areas that I find problematic is that pharmaceutical companies are getting a massive profiteering free ride from our government. When Mm -hmm. George Bush uh, enacted Part D of the Medicare plan. Part of that bill, and I think uh, a lot of folks don't realize this, part of that bill was that the government couldn't negotiate drug prices with the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. So they can basically demand whatever price that they want and Medicare pays for it. And and Medicare, let's be honest, Medicare is a big enough entity that if they were going to negotiate a drug price, it would change it the drug prices for all of us. So oh, absolutely. is there a way to undo that? Well, you know, I think it goes to a fundamental lack of understanding of how everything has been built. Because especially when you talk about a lot of these pharmaceutical companies, these are, this is R and D that is actually subsidized by the American taxpayer. Yeah. And 
you know, and, and so the fact that they get to then profit off of our own tax dollars. Right. And I, and that's one of the things that I think that there is a fundamental lack of understanding in this country for a lot of so, people. So hang on, Dari, I think you're right here. And, and I, I, can you talk a little bit about that more? Because when you're saying it's, it's funded by tax dollars, we're talking about money that, that the government gives, whether it's NIH, whoever gives money to yeah. universities, et cetera, to fund research. I think that's what you're getting at. Y- yes, correct. Okay. So let's um, explain that a little bit because I think people need to understand that these folks are literally double dipping into the American pocket. Yeah, you know, and be, because then they come up with something new, it ends up uh, getting taken by one of the pharmaceutical companies, yeah. then they get to privatize get to get it. Patent, yeah. Yes, it, exactly. And so it, it's, and research and development is always their number one, uh, what they cry about when they say, no, we have to charge this. But we've seen uh, what Martin, uh, whatever that guy's sure, name is. Yeah, the, Martin Shek- Shekrel, Shekrel. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, and this is random. Farm he is, boy. He is, yes, exactly. He is the one that we know about, right? He's the one who got all of the, the attention. Right. Um, but this is this is rampant throughout the, the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, look at what's happening with insulin right now. Yeah. It, it's you can't say it's R&D when every other country gets it at pennies on the dollar for what we have. Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, we've just I mean, and it goes to, to money in the media. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even talk about uh, during the debates. I don't know if you, you caught it. The um, the anti-Medicare for all commercial that yeah. played that it was it was basically like even public option or this or that. All it wants to do is take away your freedom. And so we've we've weaponized the right. word freedom, um, even when it comes to I think we we tried passing a, a soda tax. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people cried, oh, it's my it's my freedom to be able to drink a 64 ounce Dr. Pepper if I want, you know, and, and it's uh, it's a again, it's a fundamental lack of understanding of it's not taking away your freedom. It's mm-hmm. trying to make the society as a whole better and healthier. More equitable. Yeah, I 100% yeah. agree with that. And I love that Bernie called that out on that debate. He actually yeah. like nailed it. Like I'm talking about <laughs> Medicare for all and you folks are taking ad money from this yeah. organization that's running an anti-Medicare for all ad. So that, that's where we're at, you know? Uh, well, and actually, I'd like to I'd actually like to talk about just for a quick second, sure. you know, how our how our news uh, really works, because. Uh, so I looked at the financial statements when I really started hearing about, you know, corporate media mm-hmm. and when 70 to 90 percent of your revenue is driven by advertising, how are you actually going to properly cover something like climate change You're when not. Coca-Cola, who is producing, what, three million tons of plastic annually yeah. uh, is your number one is your number one ad producer. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. it, it's it's a. Uh, it's impossible. It, it really is right. because you you know even the people that we considered news, it's entertainment. It's news entertainment is what I call it. You're correct. Yeah, yeah. You know, and even at Davos last week, Coca Cola came out and said that they weren't going to stop producing single use plastic because they used the excuse that that's what consumers want. And I don't think that's entirely true. The consumers that realize what a problem single use plastic is want an alternative. They're yeah. not offering one. Coke used to have a sustainable business model. Yeah. They had the glass bottles and you would recycle right. them and, you know, and so it, it's been done. And that's one of the things that I get so upset about when, mm-hmm. when talking about politics is people say we can't have tuition free college because it's too hard, but yeah. we've had it. 
We right? had it. Exactly. It, exactly. And, and so, and really, I think a lot of the things we're talking about right now, we have had at one point in this country. That's right. Um, and actually until, you know, the person that you mentioned, Reagan, uh, I think that he was a fundamental part in the dismantling of a lot of this. Um, yeah. And so, you and know, the Democrats joined with him. That's the thing. Yeah. I always use the term neoist instead of yeah. neoliberal or neoconservative, because I think people get tripped on the, up on the liberal and conservative, but the neoist yeah. basically embraced the same sort of political theories. This is um, this is a theory based on privatization. It's a theory that yes. the market, the quote unquote free market that isn't actually free, is the moral arbiter of everything. So philosophically, they have the fundamentally the same uh, principles. So when you have both parties join a certain percentage of both parties joining in on that same ideology, you end up with what we have now in the United States It's corporatism run amok. Yep. Absolutely. Well, it's cronyism too. You know, yeah. there, there's, oh my God, the cronyism it, is just—it's—it's it, it's yeah. price fixing. It's all of these different regulatory things. capture, which is when yeah. you have folks that work in the industry heading up the the regulatory bodies that are supposed to be sort of regulating the industries. I mean, yeah. it's it's the revolving door. It's money in politics. In fact, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. Um, the Twenty Eighth Amendment, which would overturn Citizens United, has been uh, being pushed through by organizations like American Progress, uh, mm -hmm. move to amend. I think this is a really important piece of legislation. They've been going state by state, getting uh, each state to say, we want a constitutional amendment to, to fix this problem. Because mm -hmm. at this particular point in junction, the only way to fix it, I think, is with an amendment, because this is a SCOTUS decision. So... And I, I do believe if we went back to even like 19, like Buckley v. Vallejo, which was one of the initial um, SCOTUS decisions that led us to Citizens United. This this was back in the early 70s, and it was the first blow that was dealt to um, publicly funded elections and yeah. how that related to donations, advertising, et cetera. So I feel very strongly that, that the root of all evil in politics is money. And yeah. if we get money out, it would have such a reverberation across the country. Um, but this is a tough, this is a tough road to hoe. I mean, we're talking about what? Well, you're thirds, going against right? everyone. Yeah. So what are your <laughs> thoughts on that? Well, I look, my race is a perfect example of this. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, Phil Arbio, who has now raised over a million dollars, uh, partly because of the endorsement of Devin's cow and being able to get online, uh, you know, on, online contributions and, and things along those lines. But all of our money is going toward canvassers. He okay. now has spent $150,000 on TV ads that will start uh, on next, uh, basically next week. Okay. Um, and so that's how he's planning on winning the primary. And so we have to work 10 times harder and not for nothing, it's worth it. I mean, I'd much rather talk to voters than, you know, just have a flashy ad and hope that that, I agree. that does it. I think that's um, how but, you win, knocking on doors, actually. Absolutely. And, and it's hard because we do have a, a big district. I mean, when you're talking about congressional, right, it's not a city council where you can just knock on every door and, right. and call it a day. Um, but when it, when it comes to money in politics, oftentimes the best message is not getting across. And so I know one of the uh, I know one of the, the big talking points of, you know, running moderates and things along those lines is the 2018 uh, blue wave. Um, but in all reality, the, you know, the moderates that won, well, in their primaries, they were also the most well-funded, right? right? And so it, it's not necessarily that the, the moderates themselves won. It was that they were the ones who were able to get through the primary um, based on the, the money that uh, they had. Yeah. 
Well, I and mean, we he, also saw progressives win too. I don't think I don't think that saying and I hear what you're saying. I don't think saying moderates can win elections with Republicans is the answer whatsoever. Yeah. I think a lot of Republicans. The reason you have like even in Iowa, if you look at the data, you have a whole group of folks that voted for Obama twice, then turned around and voted for Trump. Why did yep. they do that? Well, they did it because of the income inequality in the country, and they knew they knew that Clinton wasn't going to offer them a left exit to the financial problems that they were having, right? Bernie Sanders would have handily won that election. And anybody that doesn't see that at this point is is just not in tune with what's going on in the country, in my opinion. So I think I, when we talk about progressive policy, right? Yeah. I don't I don't think I don't think that, that that's this far left scary thing. I think it's a left exit to the problems that most Americans are experiencing. And it and I think that is how we win the election. No, I, I absolutely. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree, especially having knocked on. I mean, I think at this point we've knocked on me personally a couple thousand doors at this That's point. Awesome. The majority of Americans do not know anything about what's going on. Mm-hmm. That that is the the simple fact. I mean, we have what over three three hundred twenty million Americans. Yeah. Just look at who, how many viewer the viewership of mainstream media. It's under four million people. I mean, you're not, you're talking a small percentage of of the the community, mm-hmm. um, and so it, that's why it's so important to knock on doors, to mm-hmm. let people know who you are, to let them know the message and things along those lines. Um, and so I, I think that we've built this system that excludes uh, the majority of people because exactly what you talked about. I mean, yeah. it's a it's a fundamental way of changing how our economy works. Um, because it's not for, you know, 150 people, it's for the the other 320 million people uh, that are living paycheck to paycheck, right. or, you know, the millions of Americans who are uninsured, the, uh, you know, people who are choosing between their social security um, and, and rent. Yeah, and, you know, and I think that's sort of part and parcel to the problem, the idea that folks, they literally have no time to stay informed. It's not it's not for lack of wanting to or, or lack of intellectual curiosity. Yeah. It's that they are literally living paycheck to paycheck and they're worried about how they're going to make their rent payments, put food on the table for their families. And this is this is by design in the system. I mean, the people at the top, the 1%, the platonomy realize this. They know that if they can keep folks in the dark longer, they keep the pitchforks, so to speak, the proverbial, proverbial yeah. pitchforks at bay. They realize that, right? Well, one of the things that, that I always uh, kind of bring up is, you know, we made immigration studies and the racism such a big part of the 2016 election, which, trust me, as a, as a Middle Eastern American, I, that was one of the things that I actually had to uh, kind of check myself on as the, you know, 2017, 2018, and me really realizing that you can't talk about uh, DACA recipients when in, you're in the middle of the country and these people are just worried about putting food on the table. I mean, at the end of the day, everyone's fundamentally worried about themselves and their families first and foremost. And so the idea that climate change or immigration takes more precedent than how they're going to do that, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, do I believe that there's a huge chunk that are fundamentally racist that that voted for uh, Trump in 2016? Absolutely. Do I think every person that did uh, is? No, I, I don't think that. No, and I agree with you on that. That is absolutely fundamentally true. But it's also it also speaks to why white nationalists, why why um, these folks use income inequality as a weapon. Right. They tell all the poor white folks, blame the immigrants, blame the brown people, blame the black people. Don't don't look at us. Don't look at the platonomy and blame us. It's not our fault. It's all of these. uh, This is how they weaponize and divide the country 
and it's been very effective, right? So I think no. I think we need to learn what solidarity is across the board. Absolutely. Poor white folks. And this is something that, you know, MLK used to talk about. Poor white folks, poor black folks, immigrants. We all sort of have the same common interests against the plutonomy. And it's high time we realize that. Um, it's just yeah. a lot easier to blame people that look different. Yeah, well, you know, that's the unfortunate thing because a lot of it's fear-based too. I think, I think, and here's the thing. When you get out into the world and you actually meet folks that are different from yourself, you realize how ridiculous that is, right? Well, I think that that's one of the things that, you know, when everyone says, oh, you go to college and become a liberal. Yeah. I, I think, that, you know, I, I, I truly believe that that, that happens because yeah. when you go to a community college or a four-year university, um, you are forced to be around people who grew up in different socioeconomic standing, yeah. different religions, different colors, different creeds. Um, and so you really start to become a more well-rounded individual. Um, and so that, that for me, that's my biggest uh, reason why I think uh, tuition-free college is, is so important. Um, I agree. Because it, it's not necessarily the, the study of whatever you're majoring in, but it's the ability to start interacting with people who are different so that you can actually, for lack of a better term, become more humanist mm -hmm. um, and actually understand, you know, we're not all going to agree, but the, the point is we need to uh, start working towards a greater good, which I can right. say that we are not doing right now. No, we're not at all. And it's, and it's effectively only... Um, making the platonomy more ingrained with what they're doing. You know, I have, um, I have Swedish heritage mm -hmm. and I think, you know, you, you mentioned this earlier when we were talking about, uh, homelessness, there are fundamental cultural differences that I, that I can see quite readily between, for example, Sweden and the United States of America. Um, I had attended, for example, a gender parity summit that was being sponsored by the Swedish um, Film Commission here in Los Angeles. And to make the longer story sh short, they do have gender parity in Sweden. And in fact, war films were directed by females uh, this particular year that I was at. This was last year. And they had a couple films that were in competition at Cannes that were doing well. Two of them won awards. These were all female-directed films. And you look in the United States, and it's like 6%, I think they were saying, was uh, directed by women. But what was interesting to me is one of the Fox executives got up and asked the presenter what kind of quotas that they had to input to force that change in Sweden. And she just looked at this guy in a completely baffled manner. And I had to chuckle because I knew right away, I'm like, this, this woman has no idea what this guy is talking about. They, they didn't have to do it. Yeah. They decided to do it as a culture. And so they just did it, right? Their quotas are unnecessary. But I think that speaks to um, the differences in how we should reevaluate what our priorities are as a society, right? No, I, absolutely. I, and again, it, it all perpetuates itself, right? It, it's uh, look at something like affirmative action that now, you know, you have the entire right saying, look at how racist this is where, you know, or, or using it. It's, oh, you only got into this college or you only got this job because they needed, you know, X, Y and Z to, to fill the quota. I mean, really, it, it goes back to the systemically racist, uh, you know, culture that we have yeah, because I'll, I'll use i'll use my time at pwc as an example okay so when you're when you're talking about they loved to put uh like african americans on their on their posters and and all of this i worked with one black person the entire time i was there and he was actually from africa okay 
That's, and so that wait, hang on. That's just so fucked up. So no, they're basically no, trying to tout that they have a, a large majority of employees that are African American and, and they don't. So one of the things, one of the things that why I was so happy to join PwC and and one of the things I, I don't want to completely trash it because they do do a lot of good things. But one of the things that I found uh, quite disturbing was all the stickers. You do things for the stickers on your pamphlet. Okay. When you're talking about accounting, it's a five-year degree. So you're also asking a uh, historically impoverished demographic to go to college for an extra year to maybe get a job at a firm that, you know, historically speaking, if you look at really any corporation does have racist hiring policies. Yeah. And, and so, you know, and then on top of it, when you're talking about uh, the grade point average minimum that a lot of these companies have, well, you know what? It's really hard to get a 3.5 and above if you're working two jobs to support yourself. And right. And so that, that was one of the things that, that it, it was eye opening because I, you know, I'm lucky to have had the business that I have and some of the other, uh, you know, extracurricular activities that ultimately got me hired. But, you know, they don't look at working at a minimum wage job and going to school as an extracurricular. Right. That is that shows more work ethic than any 4.0 student that has daddy's money to pay for everything. Yeah, I agree. Um, and and unfortunately, we just do not have a culture that sees it that way. No. No, and it's it's crazy because at one time we were closer to that, even though we weren't entirely there. Uh, we had, you know, like under Pat Brown's master plan, we had fully funded educational system. There was there was still a ton of racism going on that needed to be fixed. But I feel like they they want to make the argument that we've we've gotten rid of this and gained less racism. And I'm saying that's absolutely not the case. There's still as much racism as there used to be, but now we've given up all of these economic things on top of it. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? No, absolutely. And it's, um, it's jacked up. Yep. Absolutely. So on that note, I also want to talk about the electoral college, electoral college. I couldn't get yeah. that out. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So I think uh, there's a, there's two things that can be said about this. One, that the popular vote should just elect the president, and that's more true democracy. And I, I agree with that. And then the second comes from the fact we're also a republic. And the reason that they set up the country this way is that they didn't want population alone to be to bear a factor so that that so that less populous less populous states such as south dakota or montana also have more of equivalent say as per se as a florida or california but i don't think that's entirely how that's played out in in the modern era the discrepancies are so egregious at this point between like a california and a south dakota that it doesn't really it hasn't really done much to protect the Republic at this point, in my opinion. What are your yeah, thoughts well, on this? Well, land doesn't vote, right? And so if land more people, <laughs> if land, if, if people, Cows if more do. people, <laughs> it, you know, if, if people agree with one message, then that should ultimately yeah. be that. And, you know, I know a lot of the, a lot of the argument from the right is, oh, well, it would always go Democrat, but Think about how I, I don't know if this is an actual statistic, but I would imagine that there is a large number of Republicans in California that do not vote because they know that California is going right. to go to the Democrat. Yeah. And so I, I think that we have to also look at the voter suppression that happens when it comes from a, a system like that. And so maybe we move to a ranked choice voting system or, or something along yeah. those lines. I um, fully uh, recommend ranked choice. I think it's a good idea. And I also think that. 
you know, because the two party system is just a perpetuation of our of our kind of oligopolist system of, of pushing everything towards the same way. And so even changing Congress to say a parliament system or something along those lines, I, I truly believe that we have so many repressed voices for both um, economic reasons, but also ideological. Um, because oftentimes there is someone that there are. I don't believe that in the self-proclaimed greatest nation on earth that we should be choosing between the lesser of two evils. That seems like a fairly basic concept. Yeah. Well, you know, look, the predominance of voters are registered independent. It's like over 40 percent. So most I think most of the population would agree with you. I think if we do get rid of the Electoral College, you do open up the door for a legitimate third or fourth party to come in. Because right now, even if even if at the presidential level, you had a third party candidate that took, you know, the popular vote. This is like obviously a crazy thought experiment that I'm talking about here. It's not reality. Yeah, yeah. They still couldn't win the presidency, probably. Yeah. Well, I'm even so it actually ties into money and politics, right? I, it's, it's extremely difficult for an independent to raise a million dollars doing call time because, you know, yeah. you have an entire wing of the Democrats that would never help anyone but a registered Democrat. You have a whole wing of the Republican party that would never do anything besides for a Republican. Um, And you know, you're, you're cutting off just this massive part of the United States um, that feels like their voice isn't heard. Well, they're, well, you know what? Their voice isn't heard. I think if you do, if you, if you drill down on the data in the last election, it turns out maybe 9% of the country elected the president. Yeah. Or even participated in that process. You're right. Most folks don't vote because they think it's a waste of their time, which is really unfortunate. I, if I could encourage folks to change their thought on that, I will go out of my way. I will walk over fiery rocks because <laughs> yeah. this is actually how we do fix it. And I think the more important um, the more important elections are the primary elections because this is where we're losing a lot of good candidates. They run for a primary in their own party, and they're not making it out of that primary because of money and politics, because of the establishment uh, rigging sort of the elections at the state level. I'm talking about the state parties now. You know, when you go into the state party, like we try to change some of the California Democratic Party things, and it's really difficult because the establishment is so ingrained at the top of the party. So you try to put it in some sort of amendment to, to end automatic endorsements. Or yep. things of this nature, which only benefit the establishment, you get a ton of pushback. Yeah, and I also what I what I also think people are missing, especially when it comes to you know more progressive ideology being uh, you know people trying to primary under yeah. other individuals, is even so. I'll tie it back to, and again, this is federal, but even looking at the CD sixteen race with Kim Williams and um, Esmeralda Soria uh, and Jim Costa, look at how many. So he voted, I, I forget the exact votes, but there's also the ability to push people further left based oh, 100%. on, you know, based on their understanding that, hey, this is actually the message, right? Mm-hmm. People want this. And I think that it, it's as a as a, a progressive ideologist, winning the election is the ultimate goal. But pushing your competitor or your, your opponent to the left is still a win. I and and I, I think that that's something that gets lost in in a lot of the things that I'm seeing, um, because it's it's winning a bunch of battles, right? That yeah. that's what we have to do. 
No, and I don't, I don't disagree. And in fact, I, I'd say an absolute fact of the matter is Bernie Sanders' movement, this entire Our Revolution movement, has been successful in this area. It's absolutely, undoubtedly the case. We are now having an actual conversation in this primary about Medicare for all, and that would yep. not have happened otherwise. I mean, just look, go back into under when we passed um, the ACA. Obama removed the public option because that was the insurance companies weren't going to have it. A whole host of other business interests weren't going to have it. And it was not even allowed to get out of the, the gate. And you had, you know, this idea that is, ooh, so, so socialized medicine, scary, <laughs> right? And now we've moved the Overton window to, to the point where this is now a litmus test on the left. Do you support yeah. Medicare for all? And you also have a plurality of Republic, registered Republican voters saying, yeah, we, we think it's a good idea. So we have definitely changed the conversation in many areas. And I think that is a huge win. And it's something we need to just carry on with, even if we don't win every election. Um, Absolutely. So I want to ask you, what other parts of your platform have we not discussed yet that you think, um, do you think are important for folks to hear about? So we talked about economy. We talked about climate change. Um, those are really the two I think that are most important. Obviously, immigration reform. Uh, I, I, we absolutely need a pathway to citizenship for, yeah. for our dreamers. Um, you folks have a lot of migrant workers, farm workers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this is an unpopular opinion, but with the the farm farmer farm worker bill that just passed, I mean, it's it's ultimately, uh, I mean, it's uh, I forget the term. Oh, I'm blanking, uh, but I mean, it's basically pay. You know, if you work here, then yeah, maybe we'll give you citizenship, right? Uh, um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't help anything to change the yeah, the rights of it, these workers. It's really unfortunate. Indentured servitude. Sorry, that's the term that. that, that yes, indentured servitude. That is exactly what it is on so many yeah. levels. And and so uh, sorry for blanking on that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, you know, uh, and again, I, we saw the last appropriations bill that sent five billion dollars to basically the privatized prison industry that operates our right. detention uh, centers. Um, right. We need judges and administrators. That's how this money needs to be given. Because if these are asylum seekers, they need to be given their due process and I ultimately uh, be let in. And so, you know, what's happening to the immigration system right now? Um, and then, you know, criminal justice reform, we absolutely have to talk about. Um, because these are all, again, these are all, we don't have a, a prison system that reforms individuals. We demonize them. We take away their rights to vote. We we further perpetuate this entire system that we're in. Um, and, you know, for, you know, the more independent and Republican people, it's cheaper. It is cheaper to get rid of privatized prisons. Oh, um, my God. Yes, it totally is. It's, you know, and, and I think that that's where, really where our messaging is off as, a, as the left uh, party is we need to start tying this into the economic benefit uh, of everyone because we spend so much of our tax dollars on military, on subsidies, on all of these mm -hmm. things. Um, Prison industrial the complex. The corporations, yeah. they're incentivized to have, uh, the entire system's been incentivized for longer sentences, harsher sentences. Folks that don't even belong in jail, as far as I'm concerned, are being sent yeah. to jail. Can't make bail, so they're in jail again because they're too poor to yeah. post bail. I mean, the problems are... None of this has anything to do with justness. No, absolutely, absolutely not. And, and the fact is, you become you become institutionalized when you've spent five years in jail. When when you know you couldn't post cash bail, right? Yeah, right. Things along those lines. And so, trying to reintegrate. Yeah, if you weren't society, a criminal, you're going to be one now. Let me tell yeah, you. It, exactly. It's not a re, it's not a reformed system. No, it's um, terrible. And so, 
you know, really, I, I just have to bring up again, clean air and clean water. Uh, these are not partisan issues. These are these are things that every single human being on this earth should have access to. Um, and here in the Central Valley, we do have the worst air quality in the entire nation. And with that comes the highest asthma rates. And so when you have rural communities that don't have a doctor for, for 30 to 45 minutes, and then even if they get there, they can't afford their, their medication. I mean, it's, it's the entire poverty perpetuates itself, right? If you have a cavity, you can't get it fixed. Well, then you're going to have to get a root canal. Right. It's the entire idea that if you can't take care of it now, it's only going to get worse. Um, and frankly, we just need someone that that actually understands these things. And uh, I like to say my greatest asset is knowing what I don't know. I think that one of the traps that uh, politicians and people running for office fall into is they feel that they need to know every single thing. There's plenty I don't know. But that's also why this is a community driven uh, campaign, right. because there are people who have grown up with different experiences than me. The, right. I, I have we learned from each other. I agree. It, exactly. Exactly. And so th that's that would be my one plea to, to anyone running for office that's listening to this is to make sure that people that you're surrounded with people that have had different uh, upbringings that are, are members of community that you're not. Um, mm -hmm. My campaign manager and my finance director are both uh, members of the LGBTQ community. Right. Uh, my two field organizers are, are DACA recipients. Um, you know, th this, this, this campaign looks like Fresno. And, and I think if you're going to win, and I guess we'll see here in 40 days uh, if that's true, but I, I think if you're going to win, it has to actually be community. Yeah, I agree. So if folks want to uh, donate to your campaign, where should yeah. they go to do that? DariForCongress.com, and that's D-A-R-Y-F-O-R Congress.com. Excellent. Thanks for coming on, Dari, and good luck in your primary, and we'll talk again. Yeah, thanks for having me.